As the world awaits a vaccine, technology is stepping in to help us cope in the meantime. And after years of hype over technology's potential, such as wearable health monitors and apps, has tech's moment in healthcare finally arrived? And to what end? Unprecedented alliances. No one saw an Apple and Google partnership coming. So-called immunity passports and national efforts right here in the UAE to build up our arsenal against the global pandemic are all underway. You are listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Kelsey Warner, future editor. Joining me on the line is Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Hi, Mustafa. Hi, Kelsey. Uh, this, th- I think this is one of the most fascinating topics to emerge um, amid what is obviously a public health crisis. Um, you know, across the world now, governments uh, and the private sector are encouraging people to download contact tracing apps. There'll be real-time engagement with their devices on health and what they're doing in, the, in, in their day with relation to the risk of catching COVID-19. And I think the, the knock-on effect of that intersection of tech, healthcare, daily life and the economy is going to kick up a gear. For sure. I absolutely agree. I mean, the what I think of is sort of the unholy alliance between Apple and Google, which I think really nobody saw coming, but they've risen to this challenge of how do we get these contact tracing apps up and running? So they're working together to actually make um, you know, the back end available so that app developers and public health ministries around the world can actually build something that looks a lot like what the UAE rolled out last week. And it's a Hosan app, which uh, is helping residents in the UAE actually feed into and trace undetected carriers so you can get an alert if you've interacted with somebody with COVID-19. Just fascinating stuff. So globally, um, you know, from Australia to the United States, I mean, there's all kinds of talk about contact tracing apps, as we've, you know, touched upon. Um, they're, they're in use in China and other countries in Asia. We have them, as, as you quite rightly say, already here in the UAE. But do you know what that really means, Kelsey, when, when I say contact tracing apps? It's not a test. I just, you know, maybe you could explain it better. I love a pop quiz. I remember a couple months ago totally failing the Apple Pay quiz, so allow me to uh, redeem myself and explain basically that how it works is you activate your Bluetooth on your phone, and that Bluetooth is constantly pinging a signal to others, to the network, and over time, it builds up networks so that if somebody does test positive for COVID-19 who has this app downloaded, they can administrators of the app can go back and actually trace the contacts that you encountered over time to give people a heads up. Hey, you encountered somebody who has tested positive for COVID-19. Please take yourself to a testing center safely so that you can also be tested and we can start to bring down the exposure of this pandemic to the general public. But it absolutely relies on widespread participation because it's only as good as the data that it's gathering. So all of the app developers, the UAE's developers included, have promised, and we should believe these promises, that uh, this is encrypted and anonymized data. And once this is all said and done, this data will not live on after COVID-19. Even the Apple-Google alliance, they've pledged 
this will be sunsetted once again, you know, after COVID-19. But in the meantime, participation is so important. Dr. Shirley Yu, she's a Chinese economist at the London School of Economics. We talked to her recently, and I think she put it really well in terms of what is happening in China. And China has been a leader on kind of where we're all headed as we cope with this. The first to put in place, of course, major physical distancing measures that everyone was questioning at the time. <laughs> is this too dramatic? And it's the way the world has gone. Since then, they've done contact tracing. They've introduced the QR code passport. Uh, if we look at China's response, and we listen to Dr. Yu about kind of what this means for the future. Here she is. Under normal times, I would say the most costly thing of launching a digital app is really uh, about attracting people to volunteer their information onto this mobile application. And if you were to ask me to submit my data, uh, personal data information to a mobile app, I probably will be unwilling to do so in normal times. But during this crisis period, the cost of collection became virtually zero because uh, without having this data, uh, QR code, then it means uh, immobility. And so in order for me to move around, I would have to volunteer all this information. And so now, if you could imagine when this uh, health crisis is over, possibly um, this uh, QR code system could continue to uh, further develop into a digital uh, Chinese ID system. So in the future, say, for example, if I were to travel, instead of carrying an ID card, I basically could potentially carry a QR code that has all my ID information. There is hardly any place that um, that cash can be used within China anymore. And so think about a scenario on top of that, that essentially one day I only need to carry a mobile phone uh, to be able to freely travel anywhere because uh, you know my QR code is essentially my digital ID. And so on top of that national digital ID system, perhaps many more applications could develop on top of that. And so these are all potential scenarios. But what you could see is that within the past months or so, this uh, huge uh, digital ID uh, database within China uh, could not have happened had there not been this crisis moment. That was Dr. Shirley Yu, economist at the London School of Economics. So someone who knows a bit about the future, joining us to talk about tech trends and life after COVID. We have Patrick Nowak, Executive Director of the Future Foresight and Imagination Center at the Dubai Future Foundation. Patrick, DFF has been looking at what life will look like after COVID-19. So what are some of the themes that you've been seeing in your work so far? Well, that's right. We've uh, published a handful of reports over the last few weeks. Um, and so we've been looking at issues such as uh, education, workspace, um, the um, small and medium-sized enterprise or startup community, the impact of COVID on them, uh, but also communities as a whole and, uh, and a few others. So uh, five or six different topics uh, that we've addressed. And I think it's also worth noting that like in the case for innovation and entrepreneurship, we uh, were in contact and we have collaborated and co-branded the reports with the Dubai Future Council on innovation and entrepreneurship in that case. And so a through line, I think, amid all of this is really how technology is helping us to cope as we await a vaccine, which experts are saying is really going to be the only true way of us getting back to a quote-unquote normal. But in terms of technology, what are you seeing in terms of public uptake? Because we need acceptance, widespread acceptance of tech in order for us to really help us in this situation. 
So I think it's fair to say that there are some technological fixes um, that we've been adopting almost wholesale. So uh, online education is now commonplace. Everyone does online education, certainly uh, in Dubai, the UAE, this is the way uh, education will be um, administered in a sense or, uh, or handled until the end of this uh, academic year. Um, so schools are not going to resume until September. So it's online for all uh, all schools. Similarly, uh, a lot of us are still working from home, and so online meetings um, and the technologies that are related to that are a common common feature. So I think there are uh, technologies that people have adopted um, and are living with, and uh, are I think have become used to uh, much more than they had been before. Um, and I think there is going to be a whole range of other technologies. And here I'm thinking of automation and robotics that are not going to be wholesale, uh, that are going to be much more the um, preserve or the reality for companies that will choose to invest in those areas after COVID. Uh, and it will depend very much on the extent of, um, of ability to integrate automation or robotics into their production chain um, and also a decision about how to uh, reshape or re, um, repurpose and reskill the um, staff that they currently have uh, as part of the business. Patrick, that's that's very interesting in, in terms of the the different applications that uh, we, we're beginning to see technology take over, if you like. But sort of more philosophically, um, the the technology has been something that we've seen as a tool to be applied um, for everyday life. But where the crisis is concerned. It's showing us that, that, that these technological applications are invaluable. And it, it, does that change the way people think about tech in terms of whether it's those having to invest in it or put it into their systems or, e or even those who might have been slightly skeptical um, in the past over how much technology we need? Do you, do you think that's going to change? Look, uh, of course, it's a leading question, and uh, and I fully agree that without tech, a uh, world as we knew it uh, in November and December would not have continued by any stretch of the imagination. So tech has been a key enabler in uh, carrying on and, uh, and uh, continuing to an extent with what we were able and used to do before the coronavirus pandemic uh, took a hold. I think it's... Um, it's, it, I think it's also a substitute, though, um, and it may be a, a temporary substitute or it may be, in some cases, a permanent substitute. And the coronavirus pandemic will have acted as, a, as an accelerator in some cases. So what I mean here is that, um, for example, working from home, and this is uh, some of the data that we've uh, highlighted in our uh, workspace uh, report, working from home in the UAE has been... Uh, quite a rare occurrence, or a rare uh, reality for most employees. So only about 10% of people uh, employed uh, were actually working between one and two days from home. And this was, and this was pre-COVID days. Uh, compare that to about 68% uh, as a, at a global average. So we went in the UAE from 10% to uh, almost 100%, certainly in the case of office workers. And so in the future, um, I would expect, we would expect that the um, proportion of the people working from home will be far greater than 10% as it was before COVID. Um, it might, it's certainly going to be lower than um, than it is right now. Um, I think 
the length uh, and the extent of the um, of of the measures that have been implemented to control the coronavirus spread uh, will determine the extent to which we are going to change behaviors. So a short period of time away from the office, away from school and away from other people means that we are likely to go back to our previous ways much more quickly than if those um, measures were to stay for two, three, four, five, six, twelve months. So I think we will be learning new behaviors. And um, at the same time, uh, online shopping, e-commerce has seen a massive boost, not just in the UE, but of course across the world. But in countries where uh, online shopping was less prevalent or was less a feature of everyday kind of shopping, that has changed massively. So um, much like home working, I think we will see an uptick in terms of um, of the proportion of people who will carry on um, doing online shopping. Uh, I think it remains to be seen, for example, with uh, online learning, uh, whether that's going to remain a prevalent feature for K-12, to for example, um, and how differently that might be the case for um, adult learning, so universities or professional learning after the coronavirus hopefully will have subsided eventually. That's interesting what you say about, I mean, the stickiness sort of of becoming online employees, online students, online consumers. We've also seen a spur to becoming kind of online patients and accessing our medical care through technology. Do you see, given sort of the pitfalls in terms of data privacy and that sort of thing of being an online patient, being as sticky perhaps as being an online shopper? I think all sorts of online activity would need to be regulated by the right kind of data protection frameworks. And I would think that the uh, GDPR that's prevalent in Europe is a very good standard and is a gold standard that we may want to think of when uh, any kind of online activity is, uh, is taking place. And so we also, I think, need to be just aware that a lot of activity online activity and uh, technological development will be happening right now and is going to be accelerated um, given that the context and the environment almost require it, requires this and may lend itself to, um, to that kind of acceleration. I think there will be a moment, or there will be the need for a moment in time when the, the technologies and the ways that technologies have been um, rolled out and implemented will need to be assessed to ensure that any kinds of uh, privacy are uh, respected and that people can feel safe and confident that the way they engage with each other, with entities, with businesses and other, um, and, and other structures online is going to be safeguarding them um, as individuals, but also their, their, uh, their privacy their finances, their networks, and everything that is dear to people. So, you know, we need to make sure that in the longer term, we're not um, jumping into something that cannot be undone. Um, so perhaps seeing this, this current period in time as a regulatory sandbox, sandbox with a sunset clause and uh, ultimately reassess at uh, key junctures whether uh, the systems set in place are going to be sufficient, are going to be safeguarding individuals and uh, everyone online. Um, Patrick, more, more broadly, I mean, your job is to kind of divine the future a little bit. Um, what, what did the pandemic 
I mean, day to day, what has it done to, to the way you, you have to work and, and the way you and your colleagues have to do your job? I mean, is, is, this, is this something that's kind of disrupted um, how, how you guys operate and, and, and the objectives that you're trying to reach? I think the reality is that um, uh, the, the coronavirus has added a layer of uncertainty to the kinds of um, anticipation or the kinds of uh, systems we expect to see in the future. Um, it should not have taken us, and this is the collective us, by surprise as, as, as much as it has. So in other words, uh, an epidemic of sorts was likely to have been on the cards at one point in time in the future, and we should have done some thinking about the implications of that. Um, right now, it is a very significant layer of the kind of work that we do, so we try to anticipate what life might look like, and that's what we've tried to do with the series of papers that we have published over the last few weeks. Um, so we're trying to assess what does it do to society, what does it do to the uh, uptake of uh, technology, um, and at the same time, there's a lot of other projects that are ongoing that will now have to be seen through that lens of, uh, of coronavirus, of pandemics, and of other um, potential impacts that uh, we could anticipate happening in the future. In terms of us sort of returning to a, a normal, uptake on these contact tracing apps is critical in order for them to actually be effective. Given what we've seen in terms of tech uptake over the last couple of months, are you optimistic that these new contact tracing apps that governments around the world are rolling out will be effective and be popular enough to prove useful? This is a very complex question. Um, and I think it comes down very much to individual users, um, to the confidence and trust that they have in the technology, the confidence and trust that people have in sharing the data, um, some of the technologies are becoming incredibly complex and uh, it's ultimately down to uh, some of the very simple things that make us human and, as I said, trust is one of them. So um, I think we live in a very interesting time where that dichotomy uh, just is being explored uh, and is being, uh, is being um, uh, viewed through a, a lens that we haven't before. So um, in in some cases, it will feel like it's a matter of life and death to uh, be able to um, to trace uh, one another and trace people who are infected or not infected. Uh, on the other hand, people will still feel that they may be um, inadequate in some cases, I'm not sure, or adequate uh, in other cases, um, safeguards to um, to ensure that people are... are um, are confident and feel that the technologies that they're using are sufficiently trustworthy. Um, and I think that is, I mean, this is an ongoing debate with any kind of technology, uh, portable technology and, and, and CCTV cameras around the world that we've been uh, exploring for, for years now. Um, but it takes on a different level of urgency and a, level, and a different kind of um, potential readiness for people to adopt. So I think ultimately it comes down to trust. I think trust is trust is the big thing, isn't it? Um, I was looking at a survey today in the U.S. and it shows that the majority of Democrat-leaning Americans believe that the U.S. numbers of coronavirus deaths are too low, and the major I think forty percent of Republican-leaning Americans believe they're too high. So 
you know, nothing. I mean, if, if we thought the pandemic was going to change how people think, it hasn't. They, they're seeing it through their own individual lens. So, I mean, those, those people who trust their governments um, are going are gonna, to, you know, go along with these things and those that don't won't. Yeah, and I think what's really important about the, uh, the, the pandemic is that it's the one thing that um, will really determine globally what's going to happen. Nothing else matters. I mean, everything is now going to be um, attached to or somehow related to or somehow involved with the response to the crisis, the, the, uh, the communication around the crisis, the depth of the, the mortality and all of this. Nothing else really matters. and Everything else flows from that. And I think we've not... You know, in our generation, we've not had this. Um, you know, it's probably much like in the Second World War when everything just revolved around that one thing. I mean, the other thing I wanted to ask you, actually, Patrick, was what you're talking about really is a major inflection point, and technology is driving much of that inflection. Do you think tech is rising to the challenge in this moment? We, we try to do some a little bit more long-term thinking here about, you know, um, are we going to just use tech differently? So, for example, um, China being one of the main suppliers for most of the world on most things, and now that is, is backfiring. Um, so people and countries are going to have uh, manufacturing sites around the world and, and stockpiling centers around the world to be able to counter that. But if you take it further, um, eventually... Uh, you want to make sure that you are completely self-sufficient as a country from almost all perspectives. And if you take that further, then you could imagine that in decades or centuries to come, manufacturing will be happening in our homes. And it's not just 3D printing. 3D printing is going to be one of those technologies that will come and go because it's, it's a transition technology, but it's going to be more like the bits and atoms kind of lab at MIT where you will build whatever you need. So whether it's a shelf or a drug, you will build these things up from atoms. You'll be able to code materials um, to have a function and a purpose and an expiration date. And so that means that any kind of technology that we have now is just going to feel old and clunky in years to come. And I think we are right now going to reach the boundaries of some of the existing technologies. And we are seeing it here with with over-the-top services on, on telecommunication channels. Um, those broadband channels that we're using are going to be far too narrow for what we will be needing in the future, and because what we will need in the future is going to be so much more powerful than what we have now. I mean, what you started with was perhaps a shift to robotics and automation and this really accelerating where we're at on automation. Is that one of the big opportunities for evolution that you see coming out of this as we get kind of more almost nativist about where our stuff comes from? So I don't know if it's, an, I mean, it, it is an opportunity for some. It's going to be a risk and a challenge for others. I think it's going to be a reality, though. Um, but I, again, I don't think it's going to be wholesale. It, we're not going to have um, everything that can be automated being automated. Um, and it's because it may not make um, enough sense for that to be the case. There are lots of good reasons for keeping people doing jobs. Um, Whereas in some uh, extreme conditions, uh, it does make, ultimately, it makes total sense for systems to be automated. But I think at the same time, we still have very much a Victorian view of uh, manufacturing. 
I mean, manufacturing yeah, means making with your hands. I think we've stopped making with hands a lot of things a long time ago, but we are now moving towards making with machines. Um, but I think in the future we will, again, have systems that make themselves. So it's almost like saying, you know, can a 3D printer print itself? Um, and ultimately, I think that's the way we're going to go. Thank you. Patrick Nowak, Executive Director of the Future Foresight and Imagination Center at the Dubai Future Foundation. Pleasure. Take care. And thank you, Mustafa, for being with us. Thanks, Kelsey. We'll do it again. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. Emirates President Tim Clark said in an interview that more airlines could have collapsed or consolidated globally without government intervention amid the COVID-19 pandemic. He also predicted the aviation industry will see a decline in passenger traffic, as well as the number of aircraft used by carriers once the crisis subsides. Adnoc reports $1 billion in realized value from its digital hub as the COVID-19 crisis accelerates the rollout of technology amid a demand crunch for the energy industry. And ride-hailing company Kareem is shedding 31% of its workforce to offset the impact of coronavirus-related restrictions on its business, with the company's chief executive not expecting recovery until late next year. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed this show, please do subscribe on Apple or Spotify or any platform you do listen on. And please leave a constructive review. All that remains is to thank Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan for producing this episode remotely. And thank you all for listening. Please join us again next time.